with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start the program, as usual, it is this week's Ram and Stag. I'm your host, Nathan Gita. I think uh, I think John's waiting in the wings here. Let's get started right away. What do you think about our new Governor General and uh, what what she kind of represents as a as a f- opening bid? I think for the Trudeau re-election campaign. Well, yes. I mean, lens to look at it because you know Trudeau it seems to be reaching. Um, on the other hand, I, so it looks like she's an excellent choice and. Everything you were saying about her is, is something I accord with. We have had a, an Aboriginal uh, uh, lieutenant governor before in Ontario. We had uh, James Bartleman, who uh, held the post down extremely well. Um, but uh, again, you know, an Inuit from uh, the high Arctic, um, it's about time. And I, 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 I completely agree. Yeah, and it sounds like she does have the, uh, so to speak, the royal jelly, as it were. She can she can do the job. So, and and doing the uh, doing the job, it's. Uh, I, I think that that one of the things that was really missing with our last governor general is that, I, I think she thought it was all about her and not about the role that she was playing. And, and that was the problem. It, I think Mary Simon is very aware that she's in a role and then in that role, she gets to be herself if she does the job. Uh, but that's where it has to start. She has to play the role. The governor general is advice regal. They're standing in for the monarch. I mean, and there's a lot of ceremony. But at the same time, you have to have the touch for the ceremony. You are, it's pointed out, to receiving the credentials of ambassadors. You are handing out decorations, you know, orders of Canada, orders of military merit, you know, the medals on the people. You are listening. You are also reading legislation. Um, normally, a good prime minister is listening to your input, although I don't think the current one was. To, it would listen to anybody. Um, there, there are a lot of very, very subtle and important roles that the governor general plays. And most people, you know, uh, especially I think you, you had that call from someone who was making his remarks about the monarchy. You know, they don't understand what that role entails and what it means. And, and, and they are vitally important for us. And, and it's not just vitally important in a purely symbolic sense. The fact of the matter is, is that, if even from a, a pragmatic sense, like you have somebody who is in the role because they have a competency to it and that's, and they're raised to be in it when it comes to the monarch themselves. And if it not, if it's not the monarch, if it's a vice regal representative, we're taking them from the echelon that we believe has been properly formed to make, to, to help make these decisions on behalf of all the people in a nonpartisan way. Now let's be clear when it comes to, the vice regal representatives of of certain appointments uh, or rather of certain governments i mean that was i think the other problem that was that was big with julie payette 
the the Trudeau government really did try to, you know, I don't know, it tried to combine all the elixirs of Pearson, Trudeau, Senior, and King and go, you know what we'll do? We'll really just remake Canada in our image and we can totally partisanize the, the, uh, this vice regal representative and see, and that'll be fine. We'll just run Canada like it's our backyard. And I think that's what blew up in their face. Payette was clearly not just a liberal elite in the way that we know that they all are from the Laurentian uh, Valley, but she really came across as someone who was anti-religion, anti, anti anybody in Canada who wasn't just, you know, a stone's throw away from where she was living at. And she and she really did uh, abuse her staff and abuse anybody that got in her way. And she didn't she didn't think of herself as needing to represent all Canadians. Well, if you look at the long list of very successful governors, general and lieutenants governor that we've had, one of the first things you're really looking for is dignity. Mm. Someone who can hold that office down and then someone who's easy to respect. And you think back of, again, some of the more successful governors general, some of the successful lieutenant governors, they were people that were very easy to respect. Um, but they also had, just like the, the royal family does, they could go into a crowd and talk to anybody. And if you've ever met a member of the royal family, especially the, the queen, but I've noticed it with, with others, they come out, you know, a politician wades into a crowd and the politician is normally trying to convince you that he's important. Where, you know, a royal or a, a vice regal walks into a crowd and they come out and even you feel that you're important. That's a very critical distinction. It really is. And, and what, what does seem to be interesting when it comes to, when it comes to the question of monarchy versus an elected representative is that in the end, the, the the monarchy is a family. It's a family. And so our representation of the ideal of the state is not an elected person. Like, I mean, there actually have been bachelors who have been elected president of the United States. We forget about that. Uh, there were a couple of them. Uh, and we, and the same thing when it comes to even prime ministers of Canada, I believe that King was a bachelor and so was Bennett. Uh, and so, 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 I mean, we have, we've had these different representations over time, but always in the highest office, unless of course you're George the third with no legitimate heirs or whatever. The idea is that the monarchy is always a, fa- a familial representation. This is the ideal of the state. The state is contained within, within the family, within the sovereign. And I think that's something that we need to keep kind of close to our hearts, especially as we think about maybe renovating our our constitution or changing whether or not we have a monarchy. Do you want just one more partisan hackish person at the helm of government or do you want someone who, quite frankly, was basically raised to be to be in charge or at least understands that they're acting out a role it's not about them they're simply putting on the robes putting on the crown and acting out a role on behalf of everyone that's a second i just gotta kill this damn thing that's not a problem Ah. Ah. sorry about that um no I guess the point for the monarchy, and, and, and I've, I've actually found myself defending the monarchy quite often, and I have very strong feelings about it, but 
there are three things to remember. I mean, one, parliamentary... Mo- Some people just don't get against it. Um, the first thing about a parliamentary monarchy is that uh, you have somebody who is holding all the executive power with the understanding that they never exercise it. So, I mean, if you imagine someone like Pierre Trudeau, say, uh, Sir Justin Trudeau, if he'd been elected as president of the United States, it would have been a huge ego boost. And he's running, he would be running in there trying to claim all sorts of power they're not entitled to have. What you have with a parliamentary monarchy is a speed bump. You know, you've won the election, you've got the tremendous ego boost. Now you are asking for permission to form a government for the monarch. You know, it's, it's a tremendous safeguard. It's very subtle. And most people don't get it, but it really is a protection. And if you look, um, there's a collection of political economists, you know, including the Fraser Institute, but uh, the Cato Institute in the state, uh, an Austrian outfit. They do an, an annual report on. Sorry, I'm. I'm. Damn, that is very annoying. Um, they do an annual report on basically uh, individual freedoms and human rights. And the highest standards consistently in the top 10 are crowded up with parliamentary monarchies. They, they have the best record when it comes to protecting individual rights. And, and you, you can't argue with that. They also have a very high standards of political stability. You know, when was the last civil war that the British had? 1689. And then say, look at some country like France. You know, where the Britain, you've got one continuous government going on since 1689. In France, you've got uh, three republics, three empires, three foreign military occupations, and, and five republics. Um, it's just constant. Um, the other point, of course, is for Canadians, it's important. You know, we should be a republic. We're a big, mature country. What? We want to be the third Republic on this continent and the smallest one. We want to lose all of the distinctiveness in our institutions and in our customs that make us different from the United States and from Mexico and, and lose that much of our history. Thank you. No, you, you know nothing about Canadian history. Even ha- expressing that opinion means you need to go back to school. Yeah, I understand. Now it's a, uh, um, that, and of course, I, I, I don't know about you, but I've often enjoyed myself in the United States by sort of uh, engaging in linguistic culture shock. You know, mm-hmm. they, they talk about state land. I talk about crown land. They talk about uh, you know, judges. I talk about the Queen's bench. You know, they talk about particular regiments or, you know, the United States Navy. And I say the Royal Canadian Navy or the Royal Canadian Air Force or the, the regiment I served in. Uh, the Queen's York Rangers, which fought on the Crown side in the American Revolution and came to Canada as part of the uh, uh, Loyalist uh, <clears throat> epic. So, I mean, again, you know, the Crown is woven deep into Canada's soul. And you, only an idiot would want to pull it out because they think we're supposed to be mature. 
there's only a few there's only a few kind of things like that 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 really drive that home for some people one of them is when you speaking of regiments when you look at how many how many regiments in the united states are basically based in numbers they have numbers to try and delineate where they are or who they are and in and in canada so much of them are locally based or they're person based they have a name to them or they have a locality to them that that tells us who who they are and what they are it, i've always found that to be quite quite beautiful actually that that that, that difference of, of the way we name things in canada yeah and it often means that a unit is a, a lot more solidly rooted in the community and mm-hmm. again you know american formations they, they come and they go you know the the, the 15th t- tank regiment served with distinction you know in korea and it isn't listed anymore it's gone you know but the lord strathcona's you know they've got a, a history that is uh, epic and they're around uh, 120 years now so absolutely i if i guess maybe a way to kind of pivot here is to say well if if people are ignorant of canadian history when it comes to the monarchy how how ignorant are people when it comes to these statues that are being removed and vandalized and of course the churches that are being scourged around around and scorched for that matter around Canada. It seems to be a kind of direct connection there that something something's gone kind of terribly wrong when it comes to historical understanding of Canada. It's being transformed. It's being warped. Uh, some people are making hay out of it and getting ahead of the curve. And some people are getting left behind and seeing, seeing their, their monuments or their sacred spaces harmed. You know, um, it's this historic phenomenon, you know, you, iconoclasm, you know, in, in the Byzantine Empire. You, you look at various other points, you know, the Puritans in England walked into all these old medieval churches and wrecked them. You know, centuries of art and history were lost. Uh, and again, it's the spur of the moment. And you look at the sort of people who are out there tearing down uh, statues and uh, thinking they're doing something, again, they are normally entirely ignorant of history, and they're stealing from the heritage from, that belongs to all of us. You know, we'll have to put those statues back up again. Um, and, you know, one hopes that there is a natural justice, that, you know, these people turn up again in orange jumpsuits under supervision, you know, and start scrubbing the statue and, and manually putting it back up again. But uh, that's our history, and like it or leave it, it it's all part of it. And again, um, one thing that really annoys me right now, for example, in Toronto, uh, Mayor John Tory, who uh, all I can say in, him is, in his favor is that he wears suits very well. But, uh, but that's it. <laughs> But, uh, you know, 16,000 people apparently signed a petition that they're going to change some names. You know, the name of Young Street, the, the longest street in the world, and Dundas Street. Because, you know, apparently these people were involved in slavery or something, you know, over 200 years ago. And I'm sorry, you know, Dundas uh, was a friend of the first lieutenant governor of the province, John Graves Simcoe, who was the colonel of the Queen's Rangers during the American Revolutionary War, came back to Canada in 1792 as the first lieutenant governor of Upper Canada, picked up, you know, those who wanted to come from his old regiment who were in New Brunswick and brought them in to Toronto. Most of the streets in the downtown core are named for members of the, the regiment. And, of course, the two big streets, Young Street and Dundas. Well, Dundas was a personal friend, but not only that, he was in the British cabinet because he won a key abolitionist legal battle 
freeing a, a black slave in Scotland and establishing the principle that slavery was no longer allowed in Scotland. Yeah. Because, you know, he was a British cabinet minister, you know, 200 years ago, you want to change his name and go through all the expense and you know nothing about him. Uh, or the other point, of course, is that uh, John Graves Simcoe, the first lieutenant governor of the province, you know, two of his former officers, uh, Aeneas Shaw and Sam Jarvis, came with him. And you've got Shaw Street and Jarvis Street, as well as Simcoe Street, downtown Toronto. And they were former slave owners when they before the American Revolution in the American South. But they were the men that uh, Simcoe talked to. He said, I don't want to have slavery up in Upper Canada. What's the best way of accomplishing this? And these two were said, well, boss, it works like this. And, you know, Ontario became, you know, the first um, entity in the British Empire where slavery was no longer possible, where it was banned. You know, but again, you know, nobody, you know, the, the current, you know, person who wants to throw uh, paint on a statue and then tear it down doesn't bother to do any research. That's part one of this week's Ram and Stag. We'll have part two in a moment here on After Nine. Tune in on Sunday mornings at 8.30 for a Let the Bible Speak radio broadcast. This is Pastor Andrew Simpson, and each week on our program we will hear Christ Jesus being preached, gospel hymns being sung, and encouraging news from our churches in British Columbia. Our goal at Let the Bible Speak is to preach Christ in all his fullness, to man in all his need. So tune in on Sunday mornings at 8.30 for Let the Bible Speak, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's a downtown Summerfest Saturday, and it should be a weedy good time. July 31st is Bikes Downtown, part of the Downtown Summerfest Saturdays, hosted by Downtown PG. Hop on your bike and get some exercise while you do some great shopping downtown. While there, enter for a chance to win a special $500 gift certificate from Logic. Also, make sure to browse through the two downtown markets on 3rd, part of Downtown Summerfest Saturdays, Bikes Downtown, July 31st. Due to the ongoing pandemic and restrictions set out by the Provincial Health Authority, the Prince George Community Foundation has decided to postpone the 2021 Citizen of the Year. The annual award is given to those who have gone above and beyond in community volunteerism and philanthropy. Whether it is the giving of time, talent, expertise, or just being a good advocate, all of these play a role in making Prince George the wonderful community it is. The Community Foundation will pass along updates on the next Citizen of the Year awards when they become available. Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny with local smoke today, increasing clouds late this afternoon, a high of 31 with a very high UV index. Tonight, cloudy with local smoke, a 60% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm, a low of 15. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud with local smoke, a 40% chance of showers in the afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm, wind from the west at 20, a high of 26. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. As promised, here is the second part of this week's Ram and Stag. I think that something else that's kind of key here is that even, even you know, John A. McDonald, he, he was such a, he was such a, laughable character I, I miss kind of in a sense the old liberal party i miss i miss the liberal party of the 90s that that was just trying to undermine any 
any any good ideas conservatives ever had by just making fun of conservatives. So Diefenbaker was a bit of a weirdo in every textbook I read. And I remember the, the same thing happened to, in with Johnny McDonald. He was a drunk. Uh, Bor- uh, Borden was just a bit of a, a, bit, a bit of a stiffler, a bit of a, you know, he was a stickler for rules and whatever. And, and Bennett was just a rich jerk. Like, it's like, like there were these caricatures of them. And that was the way that history was taught. Now we're taught that they might have all as well been crypto Nazis, despite living before Nazism or during Nazism and hating it or after it, after it had been discarded. And, and, and their grave sites or, or former, or, or former sites of glory are being desecrated. And, and the latest happened in Kingston. I'm sure you heard about it. Yeah. And I mean, if you walk around downtown Kingston or you did five, 10 years ago, it was for John A. McDonald was everywhere. He was you know, one of the most famous sons of that particular city. And you, you could, uh, you know, see his statue, see the places where he was and, um, have lunch in a restaurant that was in his former law office. You know, it, he, he was part and parcel of it. The other thing is that, again, you know, I'm sorry, people who tear down statues are simpletons. And the actual fact of the matter is that history is always far more complex than you know. And again, uh, McDonald was, you know, in, in, he was her first prime minister, but he was also trying to handle things. I mean, and remember the Indian Act, although that came out uh, under the liberals, but the whole object of it was to try and get the Indians to survive. And a lot of people forget what things were like. You know, we raised the Northwest Mounted Police to protect the Plains Indians from American whiskey traders who were killing them. Um, and again, you know, there was the, the massacre that was the, the final straw and basically drove the Mounties out to the prairies. Um, I think the other point is that, you know, when you, you talk about the, the hunger that drove a lot of the Indians into the reservations, most people, again, have never, ever thought about the history that drove it. Um, but the winter of 1883-84 is also referred to in both in some of the Indian records from Canada and the United States as the hunger winter. And if you look at some of the newspapers from that winter or from that spring, you know, when the uh, the snow finally melted in early 1884, there were corpses coming out of snowbanks from Winnipeg to Texas. It was a horrible winter. You know, it, it killed off a lot of independent farmers, independent ranchers. It also meant that every Indian that was not on a reservation uh, was starving because there was no hunting possible. Uh, of course, you know, if you try and draw the connections, it might be that, um, remember the explosion of Mount Krakatoa in 1883? Mm-hmm. Well, that winter was probably one of the most hideous winters known in North American weather records ever. You know, we're looking at like 20 to 30 feet of snow, you know, across most of North America. And that's that's what caused it. But, you know, again, people think, well, no, it's all the buffalo were shot. Well, actually, on the Great Plains, what was left of the buffalo was also was left of most of the cattle. They died buried in snowdrifts that winter. In the spring, there was nothing. And again, you know, that was suddenly you, you've got the, the federal government going, okay, we've got all these Indians coming out to all the, the different reservations and they're all demanding food. And Ottawa at that time was small, parsimonious, narrowly uh, governed. But suddenly, I mean, the, uh, 
demand for rations was incredible. And we still hadn't got the railroad built. Again, logistics, how did they get food out to the, these reserves in the far west? To your point of, of Indians making demands upon reservations, people, pe- people throughout the West, uh, First Nations throughout the West coming, coming to ask the government for help in this moment of crisis. Again, we, we look throughout the Indian Act. The Indian Act has all these rules around giving, giving out shots and giving out, uh, the means for sustenance and self-sustaining and, and rights around, uh, fishing, around hunting. But people think that it's just a laundry list of racism. It's like, no, it's a laundry list from a different era around these very issues, which are not issues anymore because you can go to McDonald's at two in the morning. And that didn't exist back then. Well, there's also more to it than that. I mean, let's face it, you know, there's a lot that went wrong. But again, when the Indian Act was drawn up, I mean, anthrop- the, the the academic discipline of anthropology didn't exist yet. You know, we didn't know how to study a culture and identify its good points and, and, and support it. It just it just wasn't there. You know, there, there are other things as well. So, I mean, there was a, sort of a Victorian ignorance behind the Indian Act. They meant well. And, well, I mean, among other things, the whole object was to make sure that the First Nations survived. But, yeah, it was a Victorian way of thinking that the way they do it is they all learn English and become farmers. And we know, you know, because now that that was, you know, in some respects a you can call it cultural genocide, but cultural genocide as a term did not exist in the 1880s. It was not understood. John, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your contributions. Thank you so much, John. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is this week's Ram and Stag. When we return, it's the Friday panel, and your host this morning, Bill Phillips. Prince George City Council has released the independent legal review of the recent downtown underground parkade cost overruns. The entire text of the review has been placed on the city's website, along with an outline of the initiatives council is taking as a result of the project's issues. The review is available through the mayor and council webpage at princegeorge.ca slash council. Prince George City Council accepts all the conclusions of the independent legal review and is implementing all the recommendations in the report. The government of B.C. has expanded its Launch Online Grant Program. The program will now provide up to $75,000 to help businesses build or expand an e-commerce site. Businesses in the hard-hit tourism sector and the service industry can now access the grant to build or improve their online booking systems. Small and medium-sized businesses can apply online and review eligibility criteria at launchonline.ca. The Launch Online Grant Program. Application deadline is September 30th or until funds have been fully subscribed so don't delay. St. Michael and All Angels Anglican Church in downtown Prince George has launched the largest capital campaign in their 55-year history. The Raise the Roof campaign will run into the fall in an effort to raise $400,000 for much-needed church repairs. For more information and to donate, go to their website, stmichaelspg.ca, or visit the church office at 1505 Fifth Avenue. The St. Mike's Raise the Roof Capital Campaign, on now through August at stmichaels.ca. The City of Prince George and the Regional District of Fraser Fort George are working with FireSmart BC to educate homeowners and raise awareness of wildfire risks in the area. 
Complimentary FireSmart property reviews are being offered to homeowners in the Paderni, Malaspina, and Broadley Road neighborhoods to help prioritize and identify opportunities to FireSmart their homes. Interested residents in other neighborhoods can contact the regional district at 250-960-4400. For information on how to FireSmart your home, visit firesmartbc.ca. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And Bill Phillips not available for today, so I'm actually going to sit in the host chair and conduct the panel as best I can. Uh, we have the usual suspects, uh, Herb Martin, Peter Ewart, Art Betke, and Eric Allen all on the phone. We're going to talk a little bit of international goings-on first off, and first uh, we'll talk uh, Herb. Uh, a couple of big news stories recently internationally. One was uh, all the... Uh, well, the war continuing in, in Israel, and then uh, just this past week, the president of Haiti was assassinated. And this is after months of very little international news. Is this sort of an indication that the pandemic is now over and things worldwide are starting to get back to the craziness that we're used to? Well, we, we might be adjusting to uh, things uh I mean, it, the pandemic's not really over. There's, it's killing 7,000 people a day worldwide. Uh, COVID is now probably the fourth or fifth uh, largest um, or leading um, cause of death in the world. So uh, we're, we're not, uh, we haven't seen the end of it. Uh, we're, you know, locally we're doing fairly well, but um, we have to keep the big picture in mind. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, uh, I mean, if things continue on, uh, you know, uh, politics will be politics. Uh, the um, the Haitian leader was uh, trying to um, uh, hang on to power after his democratic mandate uh, ran out. I think there was a lot of people probably gunning for him in Haiti. Um, it shouldn't have been a huge surprise. Okay. Um, uh, Peter, uh, your thoughts on the situation around the globe, and uh, do you think there was a bit of a lull there because of the pandemic? Uh, I think, like especially in the media coverage, uh, there was a lull, right, and a focus on the pandemic. But uh, a lot of the things that, you know, the issues and crises and things like this internationally, they were continuing on, right? Uh, you know, for example, you know, like there's, uh, you know, possible confrontation in the Black Sea, you know, between, uh, you know, Russian and uh, British and American uh, warships and, you know, you also have the South China Sea, you know, so you have these things going on, but um, the media, of course, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, focus on uh, all the things that are taking place. So I, I, I believe that, um, you know, things are, are going to continue on, that they were continuing on, but that uh, it was most likely, you know, the media itself that um, was f- focused on the pandemic and uh, did not... Uh, you know, bring to the fore uh, to the same extent that it that it does. No, I believe that um, yes, uh, as the pandemic uh, winds down. But as Herb says, it's still it's still going on. Uh, there will be more attention paid to uh, you know issues internationally. Uh, Art uh, talking about the uh, media and their focus. Has the focus been? Uh waning as far as the covid situation goes internationally 
Yeah, it's been waning for sure. I agree with Peter. It's just a media thing. Uh, I think life was going on as normal, uh, that uh, it just kind of took backstage uh, to the pandemic coverage. Um, I, as far as uh, COVID being such a big killer, uh, I read somewhere recently that uh, some 12 million people per year are killed in car accidents. So uh, people die all the time from all kinds of things. But when it's something we're used to, it just doesn't get much coverage. So uh, in uh, places like Haiti and uh, a lot of other third world countries, corruption is a way of life for the leadership. And there's uh, a lot of problems, uh, the people getting upset. Uh, this is a rather strange hit with, uh, what was it, a dozen or so black-clad people making a, an attack on the president. And uh, he had 12 bullet wounds, so... You know, that's a really strange way to assassinate a, a country's leader. I wonder who was behind it. Uh, hard to say. Uh, you know, I think things have just been normal, uh, and uh, it's just the coverage that's changed. Uh, Eric, are we covering, are we getting enough coverage about the pandemic in other parts of the world? Uh, our numbers here in, in, in BC are, are quite good and heading in the right direction, but we hear about uh, outbreaks in other parts of the world, but do we hear enough about that? No, I don't think so. I don't think we're getting all the uh, the facts that we need. I think that Australia now is uh, either Australia, New Zealand, let's say Australia is getting a big run on it again. Spain's starting to get worse again, and uh, it's that new variant that's spreading. I think they're trying to do a balancing act between you know the left hand telling you things are getting better, and the right hand giving you some information that maybe it could get worse. And it, it appears, if you do some reading in that, that really, and I've said it before, they're walking a fine line between the pandemic and if they don't get things going, uh, a recession. And uh, I don't think they know what the hell to do. They just sort of, you know, they don't want to get too much bad news out there. And on the other hand, uh, they don't want to pretend that it's too good if it's going to get worse. So, and now I guess I'll just throw some other news in there. I mean, Haiti... Uh, has been a country that's had nothing but problems ever since I can remember. Duvalier and Papa Doc Duvalier and Baby Doc Duvalier and all the rest of them. But the Americans uh, have never really done anything to support that country there. They kind of would like to see it fail, I think. Hmm. One final word, Herb. Uh, are we doing enough uh, in Canada to prevent the new strains from entering the country? Yeah, I guess um, here we're being pretty optimistic. I think we're assuming that the uh, vaccines, the vaccine rollout will prevent the new strains, and we've spent the money for it. Uh, I think maybe, uh, yeah, we, we should maybe take that chance. Um, although I see Pfizer's this morning is trying to... Um, uh, introduce a booster uh, this fall, so maybe uh, maybe not. I don't know. Things things keep changing and evolving. Yeah, I guess we're going to have to keep our uh, our eye on the news and sort of uh, fingers crossed, stay uh, uh, stay cautious. I guess. Uh, quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about things a little closer to home, somewhat, uh, in a moment here on After Nine.
Throughout the summer, United Way of Northern BC will be conducting barbecue fundraisers. These fundraisers will take place on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday once a month through September. United Way is in need of volunteers for morning and or afternoon shifts to make the barbecues a reality. To help out or for more information, email Michelle B at unitedwaynbc.ca or call the United Way office at 250-561-1040. United Way of Northern BC. Together, we can do great things. Vantage Point has created a resource guide for BC nonprofit organizations. The guide includes a list of workshops, podcasts, blog posts, ready-to-use documents, and more. These resources will provide nonprofits with tools and tactics to immediately lift their organization's capacity. Once again, Vantage Point has created a resource guide to support BC non-for-profit organizations in building capacity. To find this guide and other resources, visit thevantagepoint.ca and click on Downloadable Resources under Media. More than a year after the implementation of public health measures, the COVID-19 pandemic is still causing stress and uncertainty to individuals and families across the country. If you or a loved one is going through a difficult time, or if you are looking for resources to improve or nurture your well-being, the Government of Canada invites you to visit the Wellness Together portal. Free and confidential, 24 hours a day, help is also available by phone. It's mental health and substance use support at wellnesstogether.ca. For Forecast from Environment Canada, sunny with local smoke today, increasing clouds late this afternoon, a high of 31 with a very high UV index. Tonight, cloudy with local smoke, a 60% chance of showers and the risk of a thunderstorm, a low of 15. For Saturday, a mix of sun and cloud with local smoke, a 40% chance of showers in the afternoon with the risk of a thunderstorm, wind from the west at 20, a high of 26. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back with the panel and uh, a couple of uh, news stories a little closer to home. And uh, one that I'm going to throw at you that uh, I didn't have on my list that I sent out. But yesterday there was an announcement about uh, child care from the, uh, na- the, the liberal government, uh, federal liberal government for in uh, B.C., uh, Peter, you, your thoughts on on that? Have you uh, read up on it, or uh, what are your what, what do you what's your take on it? Uh, well, I, I've followed some of the news reports about it, right? Uh, you know, the, the the problem that I have here is that you know we're we're going into an election, and uh, you you get the government making uh, uh, various kinds of promises. Uh, you know, like for example, in the the 2015 election uh, that Trudeau promised that there was going to be electoral reform. Of course, that never happened. And uh, so the, the whole question of child care, it comes down to, uh, you know, what uh, is actually going to be implemented and put in, put in place, you know. So uh, I, I reserve judgment in terms of, um, you know, what, what's going to happen on that front until I actually, you know, see, you know, money uh, clear money pledged and plans put in place. You know, otherwise, uh, you know, what we have is, uh, uh, you know, politicians making promises to get themselves into power, but then uh, going on with another agenda where they neglect to carry out uh, what they promised. Art, do you think this is just a step by the Liberals to try to uh, boost support in British Columbia? Well, no, it's a step by the Liberals to try and buy votes across the country. Uh, every election they promise the $10 a day child care or something like that. Uh, uh, 
And uh, it, it never happens. Uh, there is one real problem that kind of stands in the way of implementing it, is that uh, the provinces have to be coordinated in their plans with the federal plans. And, and uh, you know, there's 10 different provinces plus the territories. So uh, they have to have 10 different uh, arrangements before it can all be implemented. And uh, so far, nobody seems to have had the political will to do that. And besides, uh, you know, if you keep this promise around for election after election after election, you can keep using it to buy votes. <laughs> uh, Eric, uh, my understanding is there is an actual agreement with the province of B.C. in place. Uh, is, is that the case or am I re- reading this wrong? Well, I'm really not right up to speed on it, but, uh, you know, this child care thing's been around for a long time, and I think that it'll probably come in. Uh, you know, but there is a question of cost, how much it's going to cost. Like the, uh, and yes, they're, they're all geared to get votes. All legislation pretty well is is geared to get votes or make the government look good or something. So, <clears throat> and if it doesn't, they don't, they're not too excited about it. But, you know, we have this uh, uh, $605, $600 uh, per child uh, child tax credit, which is significant and costs a lot of money and child care on top of it. And uh, I don't know if we can afford all this. And then, of course, now they're announcing this big uh, uh, high-speed train in Montreal going somewhere. I don't know where. All I know is it's going to cost between 3 and $6 billion to build it over a period of years. Hmm. You know, and that just, uh, you just shake your head. Uh, you know, and again, election promise uh, to build this thing. It's going to take 10 or 15 years to complete it. I don't know. we got to get something into elections that they get something for uh, Joe and Jane's citizen instead of all these big uh, uh, buy-my-vote projects. Herb, your take on the, uh, the child care uh, package? Well, it kind of mimics what they've uh, Quebec has offered for I think the last ten years. Uh, it started off as ten dollar a day daycare, but it's um, uh, it's sort of a sliding scale depending on uh, the parents' income. Yeah, I think the cheapest is seven dollars, and it goes up to twenty dollars for parents that have more money. Uh, it's been a, uh, there's mixed success in Quebec. Um, it has allowed uh, single mothers uh, to go back to work. And um, so that's um, that's got a lot of uh, uh, single mothers off of welfare rules. So in that respect, it's paid for itself. Uh, in other respects, uh, it's been uh, immensely popular, and uh, the quality has suffered. So some of these well uh, or daycare centers are not really um, uh, top of the line. So, but um, you know, maybe that can be uh, rectified over time. So I think it's it's overall it's not a it's not a bad idea. Okay, moving on. Peter, let's uh, talk a little bit about the forest situation. We're having another uh, extreme wildfire season here in BC. Uh, are we are we doing are we taking steps to mitigate this at all, or, or how how long is this going to go on? Well, I, you know, there, there are some steps, but uh, the question is is whether they're, they're uh, adequate enough. You know, like in the last budget and fiscal plan, uh, the province uh, 
you know, put no money forward for community-based planning in terms of these kinds of forest fires and other kinds of uh, crisis. You know, the other thing that I uh, that I see as a problem is that uh, ongoing problem that's going on for the last hundred years, and that's the policy regarding uh, fire suppression. You know, which you know the forest fires are being put out all over the place every year, but it results in older forests. Uh, you know, coming into being and being more flammable and subject to forest fires, and so you have a buildup of fuel in the uh, on the ground in the, in the forest, and uh, you have a situation whereby uh, the forests are in a in a getting in a more of a dangerous state. Uh, yet we don't have the um, community-based planning that's that's necessary. You know, we see the infrastructure problems that happened with the BC Ambulance Service like, uh, over this last heat wave, right? Uh, you know, there was real problems there. So um, I think that there's, uh, there's uh, real issues that have to be looked at, right? You know, we have the Gary Filman report back a few years back, but um, many of the recommendations have been ignored. So there's a lot of work to do here because we're, in, we're into a new situation in some ways, right, in terms of... Uh, this uh, hot weather and uh, the forest fire potential, and uh, we, you know, we definitely need to um, take measures. Art, what uh, what kind of measures do we need to be doing? Oh, we really can't do much about it. Uh, the forest will burn if they want to burn. Uh, and uh, Peter's right. Uh, a lot of the reason we're having uh, these uh, huge fires is because uh, we've been suppressing fires for a uh, hundred plus years. Uh, and for, fire is a natural part of the life cycle of a forest that cleans out insects and uh, uh, old trees and dead wood and gets rid of hazard uh, and uh, reduces the fuel load. And uh, there comes a point where once the fire starts, it's going to be a whole lot worse because there's so much more fuel there. You get a, a dry year with uh, unusual heat like this year, um, it, then we're going to have the problems. Um as far as uh, how many years that this is going to go on or whatever, nobody knows. Nobody, they, they don't know what the weather's going to be like next year. They have no clue. I recall in uh, 2018 we had that horrible fire year when the skies were darkened. And uh, they were saying, oh, this is what uh, our summers are going to be like from now on. We're going to burn every year like this. Well, yeah, 2019 was uh, cool and wet, hardly any fires. 2020 was really cool and really wet almost no fires. They just don't know that far ahead. They have a hard time looking at the weather forecast a week ahead. So uh, we, we know that uh, some years will be bad. We know some years will not be bad. The best thing we can do, anything to prepare for it, is maybe mitigate uh, the hazard around uh, the communities like uh, uh, fuel reductions and so on so and fire breaks so that if there is a major fire coming close, we have a chance of stopping it from burning down our cities. I mean, Lytton was a horrible thing to happen there. Eric, uh, are we still looking at a lot of old beetle kill wood out there uh, contributing to the situation? I think so. I, I think it's more than just uh, the beetle kill itself. And, and uh, I think the clear cuts are part of the problem, too. Like, I would suggest right now, if this hot weather is something that those clear cuts would just be like a Sahara Desert. Like, you know, any any 
plate knee striker or anything. He's just going to start that thing burning right now. I mean, in a forest, you've got some shade and you've got some moisture and you've got the rest of it. So it's a little bit harder to start a fire. In a clear cut that's been sitting in the sun for two or three weeks at a 90 to 110 degrees or whatever, that's going to start pretty fast. I've seen some pictures of different fires around the province and, you know, it, right next to them, it looked almost like the fire started in a clear cut and went into the forest. So I think we have to look at that. What's what's going on? I mean, the moisture that used to go into the air through through trees uh, certainly isn't happening with the clear cuts, and it's certainly not happening in the beetle kills. So there may be a lot less moisture in the air than there was, say, 10, 15 years ago. And I don't know if anybody's any, done any studies on that to see what kind of impact that'll have on uh, our weather and forest fires overall. And finally, Herb, uh, you work in the forest sector what, uh, how many years of fuel do we have sitting there that's dried out, ready to burn? Well, Mountain Pine Beetle took out uh, about 18 million hectares. Uh, 2018 and 2017, about uh, 2.5 million hectares burned. So we've got a long way to go in terms of that. Uh, we've also got to look at some structural things. Um, uh, the beast, uh, the uh, Our, our uh, tanker system is kind of antiquated. Uh, out of the 64 uh, Super Scoopers, uh, Canada Air CL215s and 415s from Canada, only four are in BC, and they're the older 215 uh, types. So uh, in 2012, the RAND study um, uh, commissioned by the U.S. government, who were concerned about um, forest fire costs in the U.S., reaching $1.6 billion a year there, uh, they determined that probably about two-thirds of uh, a forest fire fighting aircraft should be uh, scooper amphibious um, uh, planes because of their cheaper costs, um, the superior volume of, of uh, water onto uh, targets. Um, uh, so just just more efficient and cheap and cheaper and and um, and quicker to to reach. I mean, right now you've got a uh, some of these tankers have to come back to Prince George. Uh, they fly up to a couple of hours to get to a fire, dump their load, come back to Prince George. This is at seven thousand, eight thousand dollars an hour. Uh, a super scooper can, if there's a lake nearby, they can stay on site for a long time and deliver way more water. Um, so that's something the the government should be looking at. Uh, the uh, the 415s are now built in in, B, in BC and and in Calgary actually. Um, this is something that seems to be a no-brainer for B.C. We could easily um, uh, transition uh, our firefighting aircraft to something that uh, meets our needs. Uh, right now, within a 70-kilometer radius of German Landing, there's five fires over 10,000 hectares, Not no equipment on any of them, no people on them, no firefighting whatsoever. Okay. So, yeah. On that note, we'll take a quick break and come back with uh, really local news in a moment here on After 9. The Tourism Prince George Visitor Information Centre is now open. Check out tourismpg.com for their new travel information page where you can find their updated COVID-19 plan and other relevant information. If you plan on visiting the centre, call or email in advance and staff can put together your information package for easy pickup. Open Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4.30. The Visitor Information Centre, 1300 First Avenue and online at tourismpg.com. 
Minds in Motion is a weekly program provided online for people experiencing early symptoms of dementia and their care partners. Each session has a 30-minute fitness video followed by 45 minutes of social time. Sessions are offered Tuesday through Thursday from 10 to 11.30, as well as Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday from 1 to 2.30. For more information or to register, call the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033 or email info.helpline at alzheimerbc.org. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity, and Recreation Council is offering their Healthy Leader Training Sessions for the Northwest Northeast Region, September 27th and 28th. Being offered via Zoom, the sessions will be filled with learning, movement, and laughter and are open to all community members who want to deliver an Indigenous Run, Walk, or Honor Your Health Challenge program. Registration and full details are available through ispark.ca. The iSpark Healthy Leader Training Sessions for the Northwest Northeast, September 27th and 28th via Zoom. If you still need to receive a COVID-19 vaccine but don't have access to a computer to register, you can do so by phone. A provincial call center is available for those needing assistance to book or those who don't have a personal health number. You'll need to provide your name, date of birth, postal code, personal health number if you have one, and contact information for you or a support person. The provincial call center number is 1-833-838-2323. That's 1-833-838-2323. 2323. Keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS FM. Well, we're cramming a lot of information into a half hour this week and we're running out of time. Uh, we're, we're gonna do uh, one last topic and uh, we'll have to keep it short for each of the panelists and that is on Wednesday. Uh, the city of Prince George put out a media release uh, indicating the things the city is doing to help mitigate the homeless situation. Uh, your thoughts on on their release? Uh, first up, uh, Peter. Uh, well, the, the idea, you know, the fundamental issue is uh, where the homeless have uh, a place to go, right? So the ver- the fact that there's a uh, hundred uh, units, uh, hundred and fifty units being put forward, and then there's one hundred and sixty supportive homes. Uh, I think that's that's critical. Like, uh, and also during the day, cooling stations where people could come in off the streets during the day. So you know, the whole issue of, of people having a place to go, whether that's enough to solve the problem, is another story. And of course, there's other questions as well, like in terms of. Uh, uh, whether people can u- utilize safely use drugs indoors and so on, right? Which uh, apparently they're saying they can. Okay, uh, Art, your take on uh, the city's uh, steps that they're going through? My impression is they're doing as little as possible and pretending to do as much as possible in order to uh, stretch it out until the weather turns cold enough that the campers will all find uh, their way back home. Okay. Uh, Eric? Well, I'm inclined to, to agree that, you know, setting this back until August, and that is uh, they're going to have to be deal with it in the wintertime here pretty quickly. Uh, it's a big problem. I don't know what what the answer is. I know one thing. If we get a utopian uh, situation for the homeless, we're going to get a lot more homeless. Oh, that's true. And uh, with the fires out there, it may drive more people to the city, right? Yep. Uh, Herb, you have the final word on this one. Well, we're probably going to be, uh, Prince George is going to be welcoming a whole bunch of, uh, smoke refugees here pretty soon. Um, let's, uh, let's try and treat, uh, the homeless, uh, with a modicum of respect that we welcome these people from outside our town. 
Okay. Uh, what uh, What do you think of the uh, media release? Uh, yeah, more kicking the can down the road. I mean, giving the people uh, uh, watering or cooling off centers. I mean, that's that's fine, but uh, still pursuing this uh, plan to find people. It seems um, it's just counterproductive. Okay, so there you go. Uh, lots to talk about next week, I'm sure, and we'll be back in uh, seven days with the panel once again here on After 9. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. This is Community Radio 93.1 CFISFM Prince George, proudly supported by local businesses like Books and Company, 16. 16-